Blog Talk Radio. Michael Acolin, also known as the Brooklyn Trolley Blogger, and I welcome you to numbered episode number 65 of a Metzian podcast. Uh, let's get into this right away. I'm going to bring in our partner uh, and CEO, who's patiently waiting to shed that title, but not until the, 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 the Mets <laughs> transaction goes through, after which we have a new and more appropriate title waiting for him. In the meantime, everyone, Sam Maxwell. What's up, my friend? We'll have to get our ownership group to, to be uh, voting on, on everything as well uh, in the time being. We'll just continue with the COO uh, title. I will, I will gladly go with that. In the tri-state right now, uh, I know I'm, all, I'm always all over the place uh, right now. I am uh, huddled in New Jersey. And uh, we're going to get this podcast uh, off right, even if the Mets can't get a series with the Braves off right. Oh, boy. Uh, This evening's guest also hails from New Jersey. He will be joining us shortly. uh, And when he makes himself available, which is at this very second, look at that. Timing is everything. All right. Uh, Guest, I want you to settle in, prepare. I will introduce you. This evening's guest, he's the host of the Past Ball Show, uh, a baseball historian. I can certainly vouch for that. He's a friend of the podcast. He is John Pielli. Hello, old friend. Hey, what's going on, guys? Always a pleasure to talk to you. Sorry about running a little late tonight. Problem. Anything for you. The door is always open. You have that VIP card uh, in your back pocket. But uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, what you're doing, where we can find it. And more importantly, you know, how you've been uh, getting through the pandemic and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll learn that everyone's been safe. Um, like I said, as always, uh, it's always a pleasure coming out with you guys. And uh, you know, I really appreciate everything you guys do. Um, you know, I'm a baseball historian. I've hosted a podcast called A Past Ball Show since 2011. Um, I basically break down, you know, baseball from its inception in the you know, 1860s, 1870s to where we are now. Um, I'm actually in the process of putting together a book um, analyzing the top 100 offensive position players to ever play. And, you know, my one issue that I have once I publish this book is I have this fear that there's going to be one player that somebody's talking about that I haven't had the chance to analyze. So, um, I'm hoping to make sure that there's nobody in the history of baseball that ever swung a bat and hit a baseball that I haven't missed when I put together this book. But um, as always, you know, glad, glad to come on with you guys and uh, enjoy talking about some, uh, some Mets baseball, past, present, and future. Well, looking forward to that work. You give us a heads up, and uh, we'll be sure to have you back on, and we'll speak about it thoroughly. So, gentlemen, we're here to talk Mets baseball, uh, whether ironically 
well, certainly symbolically, uh, at some point during the Mets game this afternoon at City Field, smoke started billowing from behind the scoreboard in center field, uh, a tire fire. <laughs> uh, I couldn't help but laugh. Uh, we'll speak briefly about today's game uh, in and of itself. Uh, I tweeted that perhaps if this were late May, you know, I might enjoy or appreciate this pitcher's duel uh, a little more. Uh, And here we are. Uh, Porcello turns in his best performance as a Met to date. Uh, And the game was 1-0. Unfortunately, the Mets were one hit through eight innings. uh, And Porcello's effort went for naught. The bullpen imploded, excuse me, in the late innings. The Mets wind up losing 7 nothing to the Braves. Uh, that makes them 24-29 and 29 for the season with 27, uh, excuse me, I would love to say 27 games left of the season. No, excuse me, just seven games left in the regular season. So that all being said, pick it up where you will. John, the New York Mets, what say you? Well, thinking about the kind of uh, starting to think about 2021, right? Um, I mean, uh, I, I, post, I posted a tweet the other day. Um, the Mets, for their last nine games, had to go seven and two to guarantee themselves a 500 record, and they haven't had a stretch this year of nine games where they've won seven out of nine games. The best stretch that they had all season was three times they won six out of nine, and it's like yeah, they win a couple kind of make you feel like things are going in the right direction and then they lose a couple. It's basically the makings of a 500 team. And, you know, even in a year where Major League Baseball kind of wanted the Mets to make the playoffs, you know, they you, know, you add the amount of teams that are coming in, it looks like they're still going to fall a little bit short. And, you know, it's, it's sad because uh, there's so many positives that you could see. If you look at the offense of this team, the emergence of Dominic Smith, the bullpen, which you know we've we've knocked over the last couple of years, but it really hasn't been that bad. And it seems like you know, there's been a lot of a lot of hard work, a lot of good things that have happened. But when it's all said and done, it looks like it looks like the team's going to fall a little bit short. Sam, uh, it's an expansive conversation that we have going here. Uh, ponderously, like I said, they got one hit through eight innings, and here we are. This team is. First in the National League in team average and first in on-base percentage. Uh, And to that effect, they're fifth in the National League in runs. Yet here we are. You know, I think I was being kind of uh, kind when I wrote today's post. And you and I, we we sort of bickered this over this matter this morning. (laughs) I wonder if you're still. I wonder if you're still in the frame, same frame of mind. Uh, so how do you like the big apples, Mike? How do you like them? How do you apples? like them apples? So <laughs> here we are. I'll reiterate seven games left. They need essentially a miracle to make the playoffs. But as you say, they're only what? Uh two games out. Well probably now probably now something different. Probably now yeah, something, something different like than that. what I, I'm yeah, I mentioned it was uh, a game and a half this morning. And well after uh, the loss. Anyway, uh, here we are. Yeah. So we still, you know, well, whatever the number is, we'd have to leap 
Cincinnati, Milwaukee, and San Francisco. So, right. uh, you know, from this morning to this evening, you know, how confident are you? <laughs> well, I wasn't necessarily confident earlier. I was saying it could happen. Anything could happen. They're only a game and a half out, but it's kind of like, you know, I was also yelling at Jeff Wilpon for putting Pedro Martinez in a game in 2005. And at some point in 2005, they were only a half game out. Uh, but at the same time, like everybody kind of understood the writing on the wall that we were looking towards next year. Um, and I was singing the offense, the pra- I was praising the offense. And, and, you know, it's kind of exactly what, what John was just saying in terms of the on again, off again, inconsistency. Uh, you know, the most consistent thing you do is be, be inconsistent. And, that, you know, it's, it, it makes sense that when it's all said and done, when this potential end of the Wilpon era is all said and done, they're just a tad short. I love what you just said, John, that a lot of hard work has gone into it. And we don't want to completely disparage the hard work that does go into running any baseball team. We just generally disagree overall with the philosophy that Jeff Wilpon has gone uh, about has gone about you know operating this ball thing and we we were we were joking about the COO but that is what Jeff Wilpon has been he has been the chief operating officer and it has not operated as smoothly as it can and that's where no matter how I you know there's these little glimmers of hope and I was talking about the offense being a glimmer of hope especially, you know, when you look back at the John Mayberry, Eric Campbell days, um, it's nice to see that, but it all never comes together because all these little details of what Jeff Wilpon has not done well in operating this team gets exposed. And so yet again, at the end, most likely, uh, the Mets will be just a tad short. And, And in the grand scheme of things, a worse team, even if it's, if it's 2020, the the overall arc of the season compared with the overall arc of last season is still on the lackluster uh, side of things for Brody Van Wagen. Uh, last year, at least you had, you were four games short of 90 games. That's something to look at, even though we all knew that they could have won 100 with how many they blew. So um, it, it, it's unfortunate. It is what it is, but there is, you know, there's there's that silver lining that, the the votes should be coming or hopefully coming. And at, I think at this point, um, most owners out there know that they would be taking a big, you know, stick in the, in the, to the Met fan if they voted down this thing. But that's, you know, they, they got to do what they got to do. And I don't want to take away from the hard decision it is to welcome a new member to your exclusive club, which I both say not, mockingly and condescendingly, but also a, a little bit, you know, hey, guys, like, like, don't be snotty about this. Don't be, like, stiff upper lip. You know, we can't have this new, uh, you know, because I think the hedge fund is kind of a, a, a new guy to the ownership club. So it's going to be interesting to see how it's going. Obviously, we're going to get sources dropping here and there. All signs point to confidence that he's going to get uh, voted in, Steve Cohen is. Um but, you know, we shall wait and see. And uh, it, it ain't over till the fat lady sings. Or as uh, a former Met used to say, it ain't over till it's over. 
Well, here we are. We're waiting. We're waiting for the Major League Baseball owners to approve Steve Cohen. Uh, We have a general manager in place named Brody Van Wagenen. And today, Sandy Alderson's name has resurfaced in the news. I don't know if that's scuttlebutt or clickbait or, you know, something tangible. We're going to find out. Uh, Me personally, uh, I'm from the school, been there, done that. I think that speaks for my opinion. If, in fact, there's any legs to the Sandy Alderson uh, rumor that just uh, surfaced today. So, John, I'm going to ask you first to give Brody Van Wagenen a grade. We here on the podcast, we gave him a grade last week. So I'm going to ask you your grade on the job he's done so far. With any luck, they finished 500 this season. And last year, they finished 10 games above 500. So you grade, and then, you know, you can move into Mr. Cohen. Uh, hopefully, they get this deal finalized and this rumor about Sandy Alderson. Oh, it's, 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 a lot to, it's a lot to throw at you at one time. Um, let's see. As, as we, as we, if you think about Brody Van Wagen, and I think there's a lot of negatives you could point when it comes to, obviously, the Robinson Cano-Edwin Diaz trade, um, even the Stroman trade, which I thought um, looked like there was more positives to it. Um, obviously, with Stroman not pitching this year, and you, know, you got a couple young kids that you know aren't going to be part of the future. The Toronto Blue Jays doesn't bode too well for the New York Mets. The Mets have not produced the playoff season. And, you know, unless they go out there and win their next seven games and get a little help, it's not going to happen this year either. So, um, considering the talent that still exists, you know, the two-time defending Cy Young Award winner, um, all the talent that is already on the roster, I, I can't really point to very much that Brody Van Wagenen has done to make it better. And I think that is his job. That's the job of any general manager. That's the job of anybody that's in charge of making baseball decisions. You want to essentially feel like the team that you inherited is better with you in charge of it. And I don't feel like the Mets are better with Brody Van Wagenen as their general manager over the past two years. Uh, I feel like there's nothing you can do better. No. I'm sure you know, he has an off season, especially one with uh, a new owner and Steve Cohen that says, hey, sign whoever you want to whatever contract you want. Um, you know, I think maybe things could be a little better. I can't, for the better life of me, give him any better grade than a C. But I, I don't even feel like I owe him that because I think the team that he inherited was better than the team that he has turned it into right now, in spite of the positives. I mean, you look at the offense and how much the offense has been better you know, over the last you know, 365 days, yes. I mean, they have a legitimate lineup one through eight. You had the DH one through nine. It, it, it's, it's one of the best lineups, not only in the National League, and all of baseball. You know, they hit for a high average. They get on base. They get percentages up amongst the top of the league in the National League. And, you know, they, they had the best pitcher in baseball. With all that, I feel like this is a monster that should be talking about or getting ready for the postseason, especially in the year of 2020 where we added six playoff teams. 
the Mets were to were right out on the verge of making a playoff last year, would have made the playoffs in this current format and still are gonna find their way short. So I, I, I lean closer to like a D plus or a C minus if I was grading Brody by Wagoner. Sandy Alderson coming back in the mix. I wouldn't expect it to be anything more than a consultant or kind of role, or maybe just if the Mets decide to move on from Brody Van Wagenen, maybe he advises in a search for the next time. You know, I've seen that there's a little bit of a connection with him and Steve Cohen, but I agree with you, Mike. You make a good point. You know, been there, done that. Running the Mets baseball operations you- department for a long time. You keep fading in and out. John, you keep fading in and out. Maybe there's something you can do. Uh, I think I think it's just the angle to the microphone, John. Sometimes it just it it goes away. Maybe you're covering it or something. Uh, hopefully, it's a little bit better now. I hope you guys hear me loud. That's, That's perfect. perfect. That's All right, perfect. Yeah. I, but I I heard every point you're saying, and and uh, Mike, if I can jump on that. By all means. So, John, it's interesting, like we're talking about, and I agree with you in terms of the consultant. Uh, he's probably just going to come on. I mean, he, I think he's in his 70s. He's beaten cancer a couple times. So I think he really wouldn't be coming back to, um, on more than an advisory role. And what that means maybe in terms of Brody, it's a very good question. And you're, it's interesting, like, talking about the team that he inherited versus the team we have now. And he basically inherited it from Sandy Alderson, and Sandy Alderson is now in the news again. And I think that while maybe there was a, a, a conflict in Sandy Alderson's overall style versus what the modern game is today, he was still assembling good players. And we look at the players that the Mets have lost that, Sandy Alder, that were drafted under Sandy Alderson, regardless of of the job that Brody Von Wagenen and his people have done drafting, which he's been, everybody's been singing his praises with that. Um, but it does seem like there could have been a better way with the, the style that you were trying to do from a baseball perspective um, and while still keeping these young kids around, uh, moving away from the, the uh, you know, get on base, get on base, hit a home run. You know, the Mets under Brody Van Wagenen have been a little bit more athletic, um, but they've also gotten older. Uh, so, you know, with, with some of these players that they, they've uh, given up infamously, um, even though Edwin Diaz is still young, and actually we should just touch on it, even though he still is uh, not completely there yet, he had a much better season. And that's something we can discuss in a little bit more in depth after the GM talk, but but going back to it, I, I think that if Brody hadn't been so headliney, which is probably just more along the Jeff lines, like like you you've said, Mike, all along, that Brody's just there to do Jeffy's work. Um, it, it 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 would be interesting, and, and not to say that you know, a lot of this might not be from Brody's head. He did you know get Robinson Cano, who uh, was his his client. You know that's been uh, something that. We've, we've obviously talked about him acquiring his his, his former client. Um, I, I still think that you were on point, John, regarding your, your grade of Brody, regardless of these little 
moves that have sometimes worked out, it still doesn't seem to be coming together in the best way possible for how unbelievable this talent is. Is that Brody's fault or is that Jeff's fault? And I think that's where Cohen's decision is really going to to come into play and whether they actually may have a better understanding of each other and what they want to do. I mean, Brody, like, let's look at it like this, too. Brody is just getting into baseball from this angle that, uh, of being in baseball. And if we think that Jeff is the one, he, if he, is, as a friend of Jeff, is the one really, like, putting out what he wants to do, and, all right, I will get your plan done, sir, um, then maybe he may be better equipped to to go into this new new frontier of New York Mets building. It 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 may not be that I don't know. We don't know exactly what's about to happen. And there's a lot of speculation that can, that can come into play, but that's all it's going to be. You know, we didn't even know that he talked to him in December until recently, and that seems to have been confirmed. So it's all very interesting as to what's going to happen and and I'm going to give it back over to you Mike cuz I'm I've gotten I, there's so many different ways we you know this could go. Well, my script is completely torched just like that fire beyond center field this afternoon. So let's <laughs> make Edwin Diaz let's make Edwin Diaz topical as you as is your want. I asked you guys to come up with a list of 5 to 7 core players. Now, let me paint this picture. You know, you can go back to some of Brody's machinations. They decided not to sign Zach Wheeler and instead used that money to sign Batantis, Porcello, and Walker. Uh, We know how that worked out. We know how that's working out for Wheeler. We know how that's working out for us here in Flushing. Now, I want you to compare and contrast other contracts on the free agent market. Bryce Harper with Philadelphia. A lot of money. Is that working out for them? Manny Machado, San Diego. A lot of money. Is that working out for them? San Diego more so than Philadelphia. We know Cohen is coming with big bucks, but money doesn't solve everything. So now I'll cycle back to that core of players that I'm going to ask you to reveal and how are you going to go about complementing them? So, John, take it away. Well, the first thing I think of when you when you think of big free agent contracts and whether they worked out or not, um, I think the easy answer to that is what does that free agent player go into? How much of a core is assembled around them? Either that core is assembled before they get there or that core gets assembled after that big-time player comes in. And we could look at the San Diego Padres and say that, oh, what an incredible signing it was of Manny Machado to bring him in for 10 years. But, you know, we'd be kind of lying to ourselves because we know about the Padres and what A.J. Preller has done now there, building that great farm system that they have. They have the best farm system in baseball. You've seen guys like Fernando Tatis and just about players coming out of everywhere from all different organizations and up through the Padres system at that same time. So are the Padres better and on their way to the playoffs this year just because they signed Manny Machado? The answer is a clear no. 
it, it, ha- it has to do with Machado being a good player added to a team that has a, an incredible core of young players. And I, I piggyback off of that as we talked about the bets. And I think they are in a very similar situation to just add that one player, whether it's a JT Realmo, whether you decide that it's a pitcher with a summer ball or something like that. You really are to you look at the core of the five to seven players that, you know, Alvarez, Samo, Bullgill, you know, Mike I'd like to hear yours as well. But, you know, you, you look at this team, where they are right now, they're in a position where they may be one star player away from being able to put it all together. You maybe not have Bryce Harper join the Phillies where there's not a whole lot of else going on. You know, they have a Reese Hoskins and a, a veteran Andrew McCutcheon, and they bring in Zach Wheeler later. Yeah, it might not have been the best fit for Bryce Harper. It may be too much to expect Bryce Harper to do as far as to carry a baseball team by himself. I think the Mets, especially from their offensive position players that they've developed themselves over the last couple of years, are, are, are pretty close. And I think they're a solid free agent signing or a major player acquisition. You know, let's say a 1983 Keith Hernandez type, you know, away from being a serious contender to going out there and winning a World Series. Take it away, Sam. And let's say that they kept some of those young players that we could maybe assume, let's assume under this these circumstances that they actually do perform excellent. That means they're that many free agents less away from like, like basically it's exactly what happened in 1984 and the 1985 you're able to get Gary Carter, uh, you know, and, and almost put it over the edge and, you know, you needed the, the little Bobby Ojeda moves, Kevin Mitchell's uh, of the world, you know, and of course the platoon of, uh, Mickey, Mookie Wilson and Lenny Dykstra and, and so many other things we could talk about. I'm not going to go off on, on an 86 tangent, but that that's what we're looking at right now, that that Manny Machado uh, or that Bryce Harper. And I, I don't know necessarily. I think it was probably meant to be specifically with Bryce Harper not being in New York at all. Um, but I, I, I do think, like with the JT Realmuto, I mean, he very much could be that Carter-like move that helps put you over the edge. Um, and you think about what if they had Justin Dunn? And, and the, the core that you asked us about, and I know that, you know, we got to get into that, but with the fact that Zach Wheeler went to Philadelphia just says a lot about the, the core has dwindled, especially with Steven Nance's performance on the pitching side of things. And up has risen the offensive Phoenix with players like Dominic Smith and Michael Conforto and Brandon Nimmo and J.D. Davis, who is one good thing that uh, one of the good things that Brody Van Wagenen has done. Um, and and you have Andres Jimenez uh, coming out of not exactly nowhere, but uh, from from like the major league standpoint, he wasn't expected to really be such a, a hit. And even Guillaume is come around from a hitting perspective when he couldn't hit a lick in the major league last couple of years. And all of a sudden, like, like the core is, does seem to be able to push themselves to battle harder. And this offensive core that they have created. 
And meanwhile, Jacob deGrom is there with Noah Syndergaard on the sidelines. You know, I, it's just, it's, it's really, it's yet again, another bittersweet thing that we got to watch Zach Wheeler blossom. Um, And, and of course, no, he didn't necessarily always get it right over the edge where, where we thought he could consistently uh, except for the second half of 2018. But I think you still retain these types of players pitching side of things. Uh, so it, it, it's unfortunate, but um, it's going to be very interesting to see what new tactics we, we take with uh, when it comes to the roster. Okay. I hear a lot of non-commitment. Beautiful. One more question before we jump into the time machine. Uh we got three games with Tampa coming up, and then we uh, close out the season against Washington. Seven games. First question is: Will the Mets finish the season 500? We we know the math involved. And the second part to this question is something that we've revisited from time to time, and I'm going to do it again. The 2020 season. It's coming to an end. 60 games, expanded playoffs. Do you have any outstanding issues with the season in and of itself? If you rewind back to 1981, they played a split season. Dodgers won the World Series. Nobody has an issue with that. But this is another compromised regular season. So, you know, we've had this discussion when they returned to action midway through, and here we are. We're coming up to the conclusion of the 2020 season. Is there anything funky about it? And will you view the ultimate champion as a legitimate champion? So two-part question, Mets 500 and the upcoming playoffs. John? Well, quick answer, Mets 500. I just don't see it possible. There's nothing that they've showed me this year outside of some really good moments that gives me any confidence that they could win that many games in a row or even win six of the next seven games or, you know, do anything that they need to do to get to 500 because, you know, you are as good as your record says you are. And the Mets have not had any sort of positive winning streak that has lasted more than three games. They, I, I just don't think it's possible. Uh, but the, take care of your next question. I, I actually touched on this on my most recent podcast. Um, Michael, I know you can probably speak to it a little bit better. The 1981 split season, it seemed like uh, initially after the World Series was played, as 1981 went into 1982, there were some doubts cast over the season that just happened. You had the Reds and the Cardinals who won more games in the, the West and East divisions in the National League than any other team finished with a higher winning percentage and both didn't make the playoffs because of the split season. So there was a lot of that that was disputing what had just happened with the Dodgers winning a World Series over the Yankees. Now, how many years ago was that? You're talking about almost 40 years, 39 years ago. As we look back on it, it's just another season. And I think the same thing's going to happen with this 2020 season. Sure, there's going to be a lot of doubts the year with 60 games and runners at second base to start extra innings, seven innings double headers, and all these different quirky, weird things. And the more time that goes by, the more the World Series champion of this year will be legitimatized. And I think down the road, 
we'll look at it just like any other baseball season. Yes, a ton of different things happened this year, not just in baseball but this year. But in the end, I, I think it's it's going to be respected as any other baseball season. We'll just have to give ourselves a little time now. I was 14 and 81. I remember those playoffs well. And because of the changes in the playoff format, you see the thing is that the strike occurred smack dab in the middle of the season. So they were almost effectively able to split the the two halves right down the middle. Uh, And therefore you had the expanded playoffs. And, you know, looking back, uh, some of those series were, were so much fun to watch. They really were. Uh, but it seemed to work out. Again, I was 14. I wasn't uh, of the adult mind where you're more critical. Uh, we seem to have dropped Sam momentarily. I'm sure he'll be back. But, again, as a, as a, uh, a teenager, you're not that critical as you would be, per se, in your 20s, 30s, and, and, and onward. So you're not looking at it in the business sense. Uh, you're looking at it more uh, through a fan's eye view. Uh, but it's interesting. And, you know, I I didn't have that issue when it played out watching the Dodgers defeat the Yankees. I didn't have that issue that this was a compromised champion. Uh, I didn't feel it then. I've never felt it, in fact. So, uh, Sam, I trust you were back with us. Uh, the, the question yes. remains unchanged. Uh, the two-parter, I swing it over to you. Well, first of all, I, I'm going to say I'm not confident that the Mets will finish at 500, let alone above 500. Um, and I'm going to throw a curveball here uh, your way that say that whoever wins the World Series, this will be the most challenging season any World Series champion has ever gone through. Uh, you know, and I think that it, it's interesting to see the way the fans have, the lack of fans, excuse me, has taken somewhat away from the home field advantage. Um, and I, I don't know whether that's still holding up, but that was a little bit like somewhere near half the, half the season that had gone by. Uh, the home team was not winning as often as they, they used to um, in regular times. Um, but I, I think these playoffs are going to be pretty on fire. Uh, just thinking about, you know, everybody's going to be amped up to show that it, you know, they weren't a fluke, whatever, what, whatever, anytime that they won, especially some of these teams at the bottom. I mean, we don't know what we're about to see. We don't know who could be standing champion at the end. Um, the Dodgers and the Yankees, of course, have a lot of pressure on, on themselves to be champions at the end of the season. But, you know, the Padres are pretty, uh, you know, young and young and hungry. So, you know, I, I, I really need to do a better job of looking around the league and seeing what exactly the landscape looks like um, because I, I got to prepare myself for whatever this is going to look like, especially if the Mets are not involved. So, um, you know, because that, that's all I've really been focused on in many ways is I haven't been looking around the league as much. Uh, but I, I think I fall – all of a sudden I fall into the category uh, uh, that John is, is falling into when it comes to that – that this will eventually get legitimized and especially how surreal the videotape is going to look uh, going forward. It's, it's, 
it's going to be very interesting, all the highlight reels, when you're putting together all these different years. All of a sudden, everybody is wearing masks and there's cardboard cutouts in the stands. Um, it, it's, it's definitely a very interesting uh, knob on the, uh, the, the baseball river that continues to flow, whether we're here or not. Uh, Sam, great points. Uh, and, and I am looking forward to the playoffs. I think they they are going to be a lot of fun, as you say. What I fret is what lies ahead in the years to come and, and what Manfred continues to push down our throats. And, John, I think you make a great point about uh, 1981 and the Cincinnati Reds. They got jobbed. You're right. Uh, the, the, the big red machine and Tom Seaver uh, got cheated out of a postseason position. Uh, just because of the way things transpired. Uh, great point. I remember it well. So unless you guys have any other outstanding issues, comments, or rude remarks, I will have us jump into the time machine. So going once, going twice. Hey, let me, let's let me jump, jump in. in uh, sure. Let me jump in on one of the things that Sam brought up. I think it's, I think it's interesting if you look at the, the team – that ends up winning the World Series this year. And we could have the discussion, will that team be you know, considered a legitimate World Series champion? I think it'll have to do with what team went. team that we expected at the beginning of the season, it's the Yankees, the Dodgers, um, a team that we felt was close enough to World Series contention that it wouldn't shock us, let's say, going back in the time machine to March or February of this year. If they were the World Series champion after 162 games, I think it'll be easier to move on and quicker legitimatize that World Series championship. If it's a team like, let's say, the Padres or the White Sox, two up-and-coming teams, teams that have gone through their minor league system and may actually be emerging right now, I think the onus would be on them to continue to play at a high level. If not win more World Series championships, at least be a legitimate playoff team year in and year out going forward. And you'd look back at the 2020 World Series champion and say, all right, that team kind of did earn it by the play that they had afterwards. Now, the worst scenario would be if it was a team like the Marlins or a team like the Cleveland Indians. Or a team like I, I I don't even I don't even know. Give give me a random team, the Giants, the Phillies, a team like that that slips into the playoffs and ends up having a magical couple weeks, gets themselves to a World Series and wins it. It's going to be very hard for a team like that to legitimize this World Series championship without being able to back it up in future years. Because more than likely, it'll be a one-and-done. Imagine if the Florida Marlins, I mean, the Miami Marlins won the World Series this year. You know, it's not like they're going back next year. It's not like they're going to be guaranteed to start this dynasty. Or the odds would be very far against it. So if it was a, a, you know, a, a random team out of the blue, I think it would be very hard for that team to have to play going forward with that chip on its shoulder that they won a World Series in a year that was so compromised. Sam, pick it up. What if I said the Padres versus the Rays in the World Series? Dundum. Speechless. 
Can you hear me? Can you Sammy, hear me? You there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I would I would you. hope that <laughs> I would hope that the uh the Rays would win that World Series. Um then again the Padres have never won one either, right? Did you say the Padres against the Rays? San Diego Padres, Tampa Rays. Uh well, for one thing, I like how you said Tampa Rays. That was that was great. Um, San Diego, I, I'd probably have to vote for root for San Diego, not only because of the National League element, but you know they've been around since I believe 1969. Is that is that correct? Yes, that is correct. So they've been around. They are they uh, they are on one of the most unique, actually the most unique World Series trophy. I would say has to be the 1969 world series trophy, because not only is it the first year of the San Diego Padres, but it's the only time that there is a Seattle pilots pennant on a world series trophy for So how do you like them apples? And how do you like them I, I, I think, I think that it's interesting. I mean, like a, a team like the Padres, I, I, I would see them maybe going back to the playoffs next year. Um, I think, the Marlins, it's interesting because I do think they actually are starting to see some talent come up. And so we may actually soon be really analyzing the work that Derek Jeter is doing because maybe this isn't a fluke and we, we should be prepared for that, you know, especially considering that sometimes it's hard for us to beat the Marlins when we think they suck. So, you know, if they're starting to emerge a little bit more, uh, you know, we better be prepared for that. And um, I, I, it's it's going to be it's really interesting, you know. I mean, that's that's what I'm saying about like who could win this thing. Um, you know, it might not be the Dodgers, it might not be the Yankees, and it might not be even as traditionally as the Cardinals. So, it, you know, let's let's gear up. Uh, I wish the Mets were going to it, but this is definitely going to be something unique. Well done, uh, and that is effectively our playoff preview because by the time we speak next. Uh, Playoffs will be underway. So, uh, hold on. I knocked out my headphones. Excuse me. Let us now jump into the time machine. First, a pit stop with uniform number 65. Gentlemen, there's only two people, and I'm going to take care of them. I'm going to take care of one of them right now. Uh, Doug Simons, relief pitcher. Pitched for the Mets in 1991. Uh, only spent two years in the major leagues, one with the Mets, one with Montreal. But for the Mets, he appeared in 42 games. Uh, so, you know, he was in the mix uh, and heavily utilized. Actually, he pitched 60.2 innings. The other gentleman is Robert Gesellman. So being that this is such a short list, Robert Gesellman is in the spotlight. So, John, pick it up. Whatever your opinions are, Robert Gesellman. Well, I think when he first came up, he gave a little bit of an impression that he could be a maybe back in a rotation candidate. I think when Mickey Callaway took over as manager, and I think part of it had to do with you know his pitching coach and uh, Mets pitching um, coordination with him and Dave Island, they thought they could make Robert Gersellman into a, a relief pitcher. And even though he had a couple moments where he looked okay. Uh, he, looked, he kind of looked like he was a fish in the water as a relief pitcher. And to try to salvage something out of him, and whether it's a short reliever, a long reliever, spot starter now, uh, it looks like he is kind of in that type of limbo where there's no real definition of what he's going to be as a pitcher. 
And I hate to say this because I don't say this about too many players, but it may be in his best interest if he tests the waiver wire and maybe puts on another uniform with a different philosophy and maybe a different group of people running their, you know, the team and the, the pitching end of things. And maybe he gets a new leaf in life. Um, I think it's another example, which the Mets have done many times over their franchise history, of pitchers that they feel like they have a role for, and they kind of messed it up. I would have liked to see it through to see if Robert Kesselman could have made it as a back end of the rotation starting pitcher. Um, I don't think we're ever going to see that. And if we ever do see it, it'll probably have to be in another uniform. So. You know, it used to be that Seth Lugo and Robert Gazelman were basically grouped together because of the way they came up in 2016. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, we thought this was just going to be completely the end of our playoff hopes, and it actually ended up putting us into the playoffs. Uh, But Seth Lugo has gone far and beyond that, has transcended the, the coupling of them. And it's unfortunate for Robert Gazelman. I think it's, a, uh, you know, what else do I need to say? Because John hit it on, the nail on the head. It's just yet another sign of, of the Mets just not exactly knowing what to do. Having too many conversations, like we've talked about with, uh, with the Jeff Wilpon regime. Having too many conversations with too many heads in the room. Always having to bounce it off other people. Should he be a spot starter? Should he be in the rotation? Uh, should he should he be in uh, uh, relief pitching? What are we going to do? What are we going to do with Robert Gazelman, you guys? Come on, enough. Make some decisions. Hey, can I throw you know, in one more point? one more point about Doug Simons? All right. What I remember about what I remember about Doug Simons is that he was a Rule Five pick before the uh, 1991 season. So that was the reason why he ended up getting into so many games. Um, that 91 season, I remember pretty well as, you know, as much of a disappointment as it was. But it's funny that Doug Simon, uh, actually Doug Simons and Pete Shurek kind of stick in my mind as two left-handed mm. relievers. And I know Shurek made a couple starts for the Mets, but it's, it's funny. Um, I don't know. Like a lot of other Mets fans may not remember Doug Simons, but to me, it was like, it was like a pretty much a summary of what the one Mets were um, a series of players from all over the place. I think Tony Fernandez played for that team. Um, actually, he might have been '92. I think it was. You know, they may have made that. Was that the year that they traded for Gary Templeton? I think they had. A, you know, they ended up making some some odd moves that year. But you know, I remember very well Doug Simons being a part of that team that year and getting into a lot of games. Just goes to show, if, you know, you're a left-hander with a heartbeat, you can get a job in Major League Baseball. Uh, Sam, any, uh, you know, quickly about Gisellman, getting back to him for a second. He's always been likable. Fans have always been on his side, but the stats betray him. He's never posted an ERA below three, you know, outside of his debut season of two, six, uh, 2016, but that was only eight appearances. Uh, and his whip you know, is through the roof, always has been. So it's interesting. Uh, John, you might be right. You know, he might need to change the scenery, expose him to waivers, see what happens. Uh, otherwise, let us uh, go.
go back to the season of 1965. You know, this is a uh, another tough season on fans, but doesn't seem to uh, stop them from showing up at the ballpark. You know, it's the second season of Shea Stadium, and upwards of 1.7 million people show up to the park. Uh, a lot of interesting tidbits about this season. So I was wondering, John, if you'd get us started on 1965. Well, what I remember about 1965, and that obviously was that uh, I wasn't around for it, but um, I guess my uh, my historian hat being put on to remember that season in history was that was Casey's last season. Um, you know, he ended up, uh, I think, breaking his hip, and he ends up, you know, stepping away. Um, you know, towards the end of that season, uh, I think kind of a little bit in the second half of the season when West West Western took over, and you know, a lot of uh, you know, a lot of the same of what you've seen over the last couple, the first couple seasons with the Mets, you know, the kind of lovable loser mentality, and you know, Howard Cosell by that time had referenced that very often on his radio show. Where he he never he he said you know in, in so many words how can an entire region of the country celebrate mediocrity the way that they do over there and it was almost like a knock against the fans of the people rooting for the New York Mets that you know they were going to love them regardless but a team and a franchise that had shown them so little and you know obviously a couple of years later things start to turn around and. You know, the fans that had rooted so hard and supported his team finally, you know, finally got the reward that they deserved. But, you know, you're looking at them still in the middle of the pack uh, when it comes to the losing season starting from 1962. Um, I know you could probably help me a little bit, Mike, but, you know, nothing else really stands out about that season to me. Well, Sam, and by all means, Join in. Uh, 1965, yeah. let's not forget, the Mets were an expansion team, uh, and they had no minor league system. You know, so they had to wait a little bit before, you know, seeds started germinating and, and, and started to grow. By 1965, there's at least five players that appear on the 1965 mm-hmm. team. Uh, so, Sam, if mm-hmm. you want to pick it up from there. All right. So, well, for one thing, it's age 44 season for Warren Spahn. And I'm not sure whether this was his last season or, or not, but I, I think you can help me out on, on that, Mike. Um, was this his last Continue. season? Continue. I'll, I'll, I got it up here. Warren okay. Spahn, uh, he's 44 years old, indeed. Um, uh, yeah, so, you know, it, 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 it's, it's interesting that the, uh, yet again, Mike, it is an intersection of baseball history, you know, with Casey Stengel needing to retire uh, because he's getting way too old and falling asleep on the bench, and uh, yeah. Warren Spahn, who is finishing a major Hall of Fame career. You got he's 20-year-old the Doug with McGraw. The I'm sorry, Sam. Uh, but Warren Spahn split the season with the Mets and uh, San Francisco. Yes, and and it's so interesting, some of these players that came through the Mets ranks in the early years that, that were, I mean, you know, we're talking about 40-year-old Yogi Berra that came over here and yeah. then uh, proceeded to retire, I believe. Um, Cleon Jones was 22. 
uh, got 76 plate appearances this year. And, of course, you got Mr. Buddy Harrelson with 39 plate appearances at age 21. Ed Cranepool's continuing uh, his career. And I think we, you know, be remiss if we didn't talk about rookie Ron Swoboda, um, who, if I remember correctly, on the 1965 Mets yearbook, they talk about how terrible his defense is and how he's he's doing all these drills to to get better at defense. And uh, it's just making me miss them. I wish they were all on DVD. But, you know, SNY just, like, plays them at 1 o'clock in the morning before an infomercial. And uh, they – it, it, it's just so amazing seeing that that foundation of of a, a player who we know got so good at defense at some point that he made one of the greatest catches in World Series history. So that's what's so interesting about 1965. And 1. 1.7, it's interesting to see. I'd like to see what the, the listings are for 1965. Um, uh, what uh, – it was like it, – it, Sorry, 1.7 was third in the league. And if that was third, you know, who else? I guess L.A. was probably at the top of the the food chain at that point. Uh, So really interesting season, 1965. And let's say, you know, 10-year anniversary uh, of the Dodgers winning and the last, basically the last NL championship that that New York had until uh, 1969. Hey, let me throw up well, a question, and maybe one of, one of you guys can answer this. Um, did the Mets in 1965 or the city of New York have any sort of celebration of the 10-year anniversary of the 1955 Dodgers that year? Not that I'm aware of. I Not think that, that I'm aware of. everybody was so pissed off that it, it – it, no, there was probably really hardly any commemoration. I, I'm, I'm guessing, and they, we'd have yeah, to yeah, get back. Right. I mean, to I'm, some I'm of those asking that question fans. obviously because I don't know the answer. You know, it's um, I mean, right. it's interesting to think about. I think there's some animosity that definitely has to exist. You know, still within you know eight years of them leaving and kind of leaving overnight, not not really giving much of a warning. So I would lean towards probably no, but but you know it's interesting. I mean, that's the first. World Series championship in National League history. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Well, they they you know, won. They, think about this though. Like they, the New York won three years in a row. The, the the technical city of New York stands the fact that Brooklyn used to be a city, and and the Dodgers were incepted during that that time period. Uh, the Giants won in '54. The Dodgers won in '55. The Yankees won in '56. And of course, like it's just what an era of baseball in this town that was just ripped out, uh, just just the rug completely pulled out from underneath, even though there had been trickles of information, and all of a sudden by the time 1957 rolled around, everybody kind of knew it. But when you think about the, the baseball haven that was the 50s in New York, just being ripped from, from out of everybody's, and even, even like Billy Crystal, who was a Yankee fan, gets emotional when he was talking about it during the uh, the 1960s inning of baseball, Ken Burns. So it, it's just, it, it's, it would be bittersweet if anybody did celebrate it. I'm sure somebody kind of like chuckled to themselves and said, I'm, you know, I got a bullet for you, O'Malley. I got two bullets and I'm going to, you know, not shoot Stalin and, and Hitler because of it. Uh 
that's another podcast. I wish I wish we could go on about that. I'm really in the mood. Uh, but you've been listening to a Metzian podcast, episode number 65. Our guest this evening has been John Pielli, host of the Past Ball Show. John, thank you so very much for joining us this evening. Uh, we we appreciate your time so very much. You're a good friend of the show. That being said, uh, I'll give you a moment to collect your thoughts. And Sam, uh, I will go to you for your final word. Well, uh, I'm going to echo what you said. Thank you, John. You are an excellent, uh, excellent follower and excellent uh, friend of the show. So thank you for for uh, coming on here and, and giving us your Mets knowledge. And I, I just want to say hopefulness. That's my last word. Uh, regardless of the fact that they're probably not going to be making the playoffs. Um, I, I like a lot of this team and I hope uh, I have a lot of hopefulness that Steve Cohen's reign and the way he does business will, will go well with what the Mets are trying to accomplish and becoming a consistent, uh, 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 consistently winning with a foundation at all times, <laughs> because sometimes it seems like they are a building during an earthquake that's just trying to hold on for dear life. So it, that's, that's what I, I want turned around. John, well, the one thing, on that, the one thing that stands. Now, go ahead. Mike. I'm sorry, John. On behalf of our partner, Rich, who couldn't make it with us, uh, this evening, uh, again, I want to thank you. Please take a moment. Give us another bio. Tell us what you're doing, where we can find it. And uh, by all means, your last word, sir. Hey, you can find me on Twitter at uh, John underscore Pielli. You can check out my website, johnpielli.com. Um, I've put a lot of different things together. Um, certainly, uh, there's a lot of uh, literature available about my book and what I'm looking to write about, the top 100 offensive position players to ever play baseball. And this summarizes baseball from its inception to the, you know, the old National Association to the Negro Leagues to overseas, whether it's Latin American countries, Mexico, um, Japan. And to just break down each era in baseball history and summarize who were the best hitters to ever play. And, yeah, I look forward to this book getting published uh, probably sometime within the next, next six to eight months. But as I, as I started the show by talking about, um, I, I just want to make sure I cover every last base. I don't want to have this book published and have somebody say, well, what about this player? I want to say, listen, I consider that player. Um, you know, in regards to, to you guys, it's always a pleasure coming on with you. Um, I love talking Mets baseball. Um, as much of a Mets fan as, as you guys and, the, you know, the many, many others that, that you know, follow the show. Um, I hope that the Mets are on the bigger and better things down the road. Uh, what I am most excited about this season is it doesn't look like, even though it's going to make the playoffs or probably not going to make the playoffs, it doesn't look like a group of old players that are just going away. Yes, there's a couple older players on this team, but they have a very good young nucleus, particularly their, you know, their lineup. Um, you know, just about everybody outside of Robinson Cano and soon to be former Met Wilson Ramos are under the age of 30. <laughs> you know, Jacob DeGrom, the back-to-back Cy Youngs, 
young pitching that is still there a little bit, but needs a little bit of addition added to it. Uh, you put that all together, you culminate it with the potential of a new ownership. And how exciting is that for any Mets fan out there that has been waiting to get freed or emancipated from, you know, the Wilpon regime probably since birth in a lot of cases. So I'm there with you guys, praying for the best. And if 2020 isn't good for, for the Mets, hopefully 2021 will be that season. You know, as the old Brooklyn Dodgers used to say, wait till next year. Right there with you. My word is anticipation. I'll pick up where you left off uh, with new ownership. Six years between Nelson Doubleday leaving and the Madoff implosion. I was 13 in 1980, when Will Pond and Doubleday purchased the team. I'm now 53. This man has impacted my life for 40 freaking years. Anticipation. Uh, I, I, need, I need a new regime in place. That said, Sam, I will pass it to you. Take us home. Get us out of here the way you know how. Until we can say it to their faces. Let's go <laughs> next. Let's go, Let's go next. Med. Take care, everybody. Thanks, John. Thanks, Mike. Good night, all. Thank you, John. Hey, take care, guys. Thank you.